0: The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. What a great choice the Lord made. Final call for the parenting course. Well, pick me, pick me, don't pick me. Pick me. What did he do to his head? She proper did that to him. You've totally taken his manhood away, you know that, don't you? It's just... Yes, I want to go to the parenting course. I need to go to the parenting course. Great. Disciples Toolkit, hashtag TDTK. We're getting the idea now, aren't we? I hope. This is you. This is you, or it's me. And you are you, and I am me, because people have loved us poured themselves into us, taught us, encouraged us, corrected us, rebuked us, discipled us, disciplined us, modeled faith to us. So people that are further ahead in some aspect of God's kingdom purpose have taken us graciously by the hand and they've led us forward. there, There are always random stories of God in his sovereignty leading people forward. You know the kind of stories where someone's walking down the road, they've never been to church, they've never thought of anything, and they pick up a scrap of paper and there's a Bible verse on it and God speaks powerfully and wonderfully to them through that and their lives are changed. That's a magnificent moment. But generally, God's purpose is to lead you on by other people. Generally, God's purpose is that other people are going to get led on because you do that for them. You take them by the hand and lead them forward. And so there's a whole cloud of witnesses, a whole group of people that that we just, week by week through this course, uh, through this series, want to say thank you to God for. Thank you for parents that have done that for us, or family members, friends, youth leaders, Sunday school workers, teachers, and all the rest. People that have reached out their hand, to us and led us uh, forward. And then as we think about those people, And how they've invested and led us. And what it was about them. About the way that they allowed us to connect. Not just with their teaching or or in a formal environment. But the way they allowed us to connect with their lives. That helped us and helped our faith to grow and blossom. So we think about how we are those people for others. Who am I taking by the hand and leading them uh, forward? Every disciple should be discipling someone Somewhere, that's what being a disciple means. Okay, so far so good. I've heard all that uh, a few times now. Didn't Sarah do brilliantly last week? Uh, make sure you. Yeah, she's not in the room, unfortunately, but make sure you tell her uh, uh, how well she did as she helped us think about those uh, discipling uh, relationships. The model, of course, is Jesus. We're taking our our, our kicking off point uh, every uh, Sunday by the way that Jesus lived and behaved and discipled those who he gathered around him and uh, called uh, disciples. This week is a fantastic tool. Jesus used it almost all of the time. And it's so good because it's something so many of us already enjoy doing. Can you imagine if there was something that you already love to do and it happened to create disciples along the way? Wouldn't you be interested? You sense there's a trick going on. I know. You're nervous about agreeing with me. In the Gospels, there are some son of man sayings. When Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It comes from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. When the Messiah, the Savior, the Liberator, the one who would come was called the Son of Man. And so when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, it's like he's adopting that title and saying, Yes, the person that you are waiting for, I am that person. And ultimately, that's why they put Jesus on a cross. They didn't put him on a cross because he ate with tax collectors and sinners. They put him on a cross because he declared himself to be the Messiah from the Old Testament. And there are three times that Jesus adopts, or or Luke records, Jesus adopting that kind of Son of Man uh, status. Here's the first one, and it talks about the purpose for which Jesus Came. For the Son of Man uh, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's a familiar verse to us, isn't it? And uh, uh, we understand what Jesus is saying, or what Luke's saying, commentating about Jesus, that he is the one that was expected from heaven, and his purpose was ultimately to serve us by giving his life uh, for our sin and our shame and our guilt and our failure and so on. Then there's another one that you're probably also reasonably familiar with, maybe. The Son of Man came to seek and save the... Lost, He came to seek and save the lost. Another declaration of why Jesus came. Of what God was doing in sending his son into the world. And then there's a third son of man saying. Who knows what it is? That's not about purpose. But it's much more about methodology. It's not about what the son of man came to do. But more about how he came to do it. The son of man came eating and drinking, how beautifully holy is that? And he came eating and drinking in such a way, in such a way that those who were his enemies could point to his behaviour and say, "It's like he's a glutton and a drunkard." Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that Jesus was either of those things, but what I am suggesting is he embraced the lifestyle of eating and drinking, of eating. And drinking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Luke's Gospel especially makes the point that Jesus almost does everything in and around a meal. He's either on his way to a meal, having a meal, or having just left. A meal. Luke chapter 5, Jesus eats with Levi. Luke chapter 7, he eats with Simon the Pharisee, and the prostitute walks in and starts stroking him. Awkward. Chapter 9, he feeds the 4,000 just because you can. Chapter 10, he eats with Mary and Martha. Uh, Mary gets it right, Martha gets it wrong. Awkward. Uh, Chapter 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees, but when does he do it? He does it at a meal. Chapter 14, at a meal, he invites them to bring the poor uh, to uh, the banqueting feast. Chapter 19, Jesus very, very rudely invites himself to someone else's house for tea... That guy's name was Zacchaeus, but it turned out all right at the end. Uh, Chapter 22, Jesus has the Passover meal, the long tradition that's been going for a thousand years or more, and he has the audacity, the cheek, to reinvent it, to reinterpret it, to say there's a greater Passover that's about to happen. And in chapter 24, he has a meal with some uh, walkers going from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and he's so rude he doesn't even stay till the end of the meal. Uh, That's Luke's gospel. If you take the meals out of it, it's like all you get left is a few odd words here and there. And so no wonder Luke says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Why were meals so important? Sharing meals was one of Jesus' brilliant discipleship tools. The disciples certainly grasped that meals, that shared moment around food was an essential part of the rhythm of life to which he was calling them to. If our churches center around gatherings like this, the early churches' gatherings almost universally centered around a meal. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he's writing all about the way you behave at mealtimes. It's like parenting your kids when they're at the meal table. Knife and fork and all that stuff, which way round. And does the side plate go on the left or the right? Are you sure? Yes, and you're right. You're right that the side plate goes on the left. And, And Paul's saying, look, when you eat... The meal is central to what you do. For goodness sake, don't go on, rich people, eat first because you've got there early, because you've knocked off work, poor people come late, there's not enough Sort it out. He doesn't say stop the meals because it's causing you trouble. He says sort out the way that you eat uh, together. And perhaps that explains why elders in the church uh, had to be good with hospitality. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Paul makes the same point in, uh, uh, when he writes to Titus. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Uh, in Romans, uh, there's this lovely phrase, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy sends you his greetings. Why all this emphasis on hospitality? Because the church was growing from household, extended household, from oikos to oikos. And that was the main building block of the community of the the new disciples. That's the main building block through which the early church was growing so successfully and so fast. A household and so often the gathering was centered around a meal. So why then is a meal such a great environment for discipleship? Here are a few thoughts to encourage you to think about how you use your meals in the task of discipleship. It might be that your table, which is what we're putting in our toolkit today... It might be that your table is one of the most effective tools you have to help take other people by the hand and lead them forward. At a meal, everyone participates. I don't know why this is a blow on my mic, which is annoying me, even if it's not annoying you. Everyone participates. You don't generally sit around the table and you have some and you have some, but not you today and you have some. Maybe you've been in environments where that's been the case because needs must. And you, you will know instinctively it's not how meals were meant to be. Jesus uh, went to a great banquet that Levi, the tax collector, held and uh, all the people were gathered there. And the, the Pharisees, why did the Pharisees get so annoyed? They didn't get so annoyed because it was a feast, What they got annoyed at was the party list. And uh, if you've ever arranged a party, you know that lists can be tricky. If you're arranging a wedding, you know that invitations can be a little difficult. And the Pharisees were pointing out, the trouble with your, your, your party, Jesus, is that all the wrong people have been invited. And the reason that they're the wrong people is that when you hold a feast and everyone comes and participates, there is a big open sense of welcome. And it was so much more so in their community than perhaps meals are today for us. The meal meant intimacy. It meant friendship. It meant togetherness. It meant we are one together in this. And they could not get their heads around why Jesus would want to say to the tax collectors, the prostitutes, those who knew they were sinful and guilty, that they can be one with him. And they certainly didn't understand why Jesus couldn't care less about declaring that to the world. You see, if I was labeled as a friend of sinners and tax collectors. I might be nervous about my reputation, but Jesus seemed to embrace that title. He seemed to be proud of the fact that he was friends with sinners and tax collectors. Think about the guest list. Invite the poor. It breaks down all the social barriers, all the rubbish, because at a meal, everyone participates. As a beginnings to be a sign, a hint of the kingdom of God that's coming. The meal makes the relationship. And I've been thinking about the way that we can serve other people by providing food for them... And there's a sense in which we feel that we're doing good and we are by providing a need that other people don't have. But there is, wouldn't you agree with me, a totally different dynamic between providing a meal for someone and giving it to them than sharing that same meal with them. And what, I, what I'm really excited about, about the make lunch uh, uh, thing that Sarah was talking about on the video, is that we are going to share a family meal with people twice a week through the summer. Uh, And there's something profoundly gospel about that moment. It's not giving people food. It's sharing a meal. And it's saying that we both need this meal that we are sharing together. Your hopes and dreams and my hopes and dreams, they are the same and we share in them. Everyone participates except if there are Brussels sprouts. And then it's quite legitimate to step back from the meal table. Added to my book of unbelievably ridiculous things parents say to children is what my father said to me. In a few weeks' time, he'll be listening to this online somewhere, driving somewhere, and I hope he listens very carefully. (laughs) Because a long, long time ago, it was approaching Christmas, and I was made forced, forced forced to eat one Brussels sprout. It took me longer to eat that one sprout than the rest of the meal and dessert. Everyone else had very rudely left the table except my poor father, who was in charge of the completion of the task for which I was now responsible. After finishing the Brussels sprout, thank you, I went to rehearsals at the church for the carols by candlelight service where I was playing the descant recorder. (laughs) That's my life you're laughing at. You know that, don't you? You're laughing full on at my life. That's my world. And in that practice, I played the descant recorder considerably better than I normally would. And my dad said to me, It's because you ate that Brussels sprout. Isn't that the most ridiculous thing you have ever heard? Forgive him. I'm a long way off forgiving him, Nicola. Goodness. I've done well just to get it out. This is therapy. You realize that? You think uh, I'm helping you week by week. This is my therapy session every, every week. And I'm grateful to you for it, for sticking, sticking the journey. There is a Bible verse about sprouts. Do you know that? You've got to go to the American Standard. Does anyone know where it is? You've got to go to the American Standard to find it. Close. Isaiah 61, verse 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts. (laughs) Isn't that brilliant? (laughs) And as a garden causes things thrown in it to spring up. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Absolutely. So, um... Everyone participates in the meal. And there's something profoundly gospel about that. A meal is great for discipleship because it slows things down. It's annoying eating with other people, isn't it? You've got to wait for the food to be ready and it takes longer if they're cooking for more people. You have to wait for everyone to be served. You have to wait to say grace. I'll say grace. I'll say grace. Why do the kids want to say grace so quickly? To get on with the proceedings. You have to wait till everybody's finished. Me and my sprout. Get that vegetable down. Then you have to wash up and clear away. And you know after you've fed a lot of people, the kitchen looks like Armageddon, doesn't it? And somehow someone's got to go in there. In fact, you usually send a SWAT team in, don't you, together, to try and sort it all out. But what's happening? We've slowed everything down. And there are conversations that take place in those moments that I think would probably never otherwise have taken place. There are things that happen at the kitchen sink that don't happen often in other places. As you're together, just unpacking the day, reflecting on your hopes and dreams, just relaxing together because the the task has slowed the whole thing down. Are you with me? If kitchens could have ears, they would tell fantastic stories. More stories in the kitchen, I think, than probably in the lounge. Wouldn't you agree? More stories in the dining room, maybe, than in the hallway. Because that's where life happens. Where people are just real and doing the ordinary things that ordinary people are required to do. Hospitality, uh, someone wrote involves welcoming, creating space, listening, paying attention, and providing. Meals slow things down. Some of us don't like that. We like to get things done. But meals force you to be people orientated in, sorry, meals force you to be people orientated rather than task orientated. That was Martha's problem, wasn't it? People orientated rather than task orientated. Sharing a meal is not the only way to build relationships, but it is number one on the list. And because it's real, and because of that sense of participation, and because of that sense of pausing and slowing things down, we found it a great moment to pray together. Uh, it's our rhythm to try and pray together as part of the meal. I'd like to say we do that all of the time. That wouldn't be true. We go through seasons where we get it working really well and find a sweet spot. And then, like so many good things, will you relate to this? Somehow it slips away and you think, hey, what happened to that? And you've got to grasp it back. Is that just me or does that happen to you? And you step into something good and you hold on to it for a while and oh, where did that go? And you grab it back. But we found that really, because people are in that place, we've slowed down, we've listened to one another, we've heard one another, and we can dig in and we can pray together in that moment, whoever's with us around the tables. Meals are great for discipleship because everyone not only participates and pauses, but is provided for. And that's a beautiful thing that everybody is provided for, and every meal, therefore, is a testimony that we have a God who provides for us. You see how the meal in its simple essence isn't just about the fact that another human being has provided something for us. It's an active reality that that person is able to provide because someone else has provided for them. Someone else has provided who provided for them, who provided for them. And there is a whole chain reaction. And even though we've, we've long lost our kind of relationship with the soil where we quite literally understood that God provided, so as we understand Understand that the meal on the table is because people have provided for people who have provided, for people who have provided. there is a connectedness, and ultimately it's because God who has provided all things, and so we share grace at the beginning of the meal. This is a sacrament. This is a moment in the rush of the day around the table where each one of us say, "Above all else, we need this provision." We are not autonomous. We are not independent. We're not able to organize our own destiny. But we are interdependent on one another and ultimately completely dependent upon God. And it's not just physical provision, is it? A meal provides emotional provision because we can talk about our days. We can talk about our hopes and our dreams. We can begin to unpack who we are. And do you know when you say grace, you don't just thank God for the food, do you? You normally thank God for the people that are around. Because actually you need them more than you need the food. And all of it's a gift from our Father in heaven. A a Bible verse for vegetarians? Any vegetarians in the house? A few of you? Yeah? This is for you. Better is a dish of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. Mm, I think I'd take my chance with the fatted calf, personally. (laughs) That's a personal choice. That's Proverbs 15, verse 17, if you think I'm making all this stuff up. Everyone is provided for, which moves ever so closely to the reality that He is present at a meal. He is present at a meal. If any truth this morning could change the dynamics of our meal times, wouldn't it be this one? He is present at our meals Anyone got the picture up in their home about Jesus, the unseen guest? Oh, you non-Christian pagan people. Honest, I thought a few of you might, because pictures like this are, are, really, uh, are really common. Maybe, um, maybe we've moved on from the generation where they were most uh, uh, common. Uh, Christ is the head of uh, this house, the unseen guest at every meal. And the silent listener to every conversation. It's not a Bible verse, but it should have been, perhaps. Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal. And the silent listener to every conversation. And through the meal, through the act of providing and the conversation. Listen to the beauty of this. You make Christ visible. Isn't that an amazing privilege? You make Christ visible as you invite people to share the meal with you, to recognize it all comes from God, that we need one another, that we're, we're, we're together in the journey. Every meal anticipates the meal, of course, that one day we will share in, that the Bible works uh, a sense of excitement. You know, as the day approaches, if you're on some kind of social media and it's got 10 days to go and 5 days to go and 4 days to go. The Bible kind of does that about the big meal at the end. So you might be hungry now, but that meal's coming. And it's going to be an amazing feast. And do you know the person who's going to host the meal is going to be Jesus himself all the way right through to Revelation. So it's going to be some great feast. And uh, I'm not sure about the whole vegetarian meat thing. I've got no idea about the theology around that. But we're all going to love it. And, and, and in a sense, every meal kind of anticipates that, that moment where, where God will have fully provided for all our needs and God himself will be fully present with us. Which is why every meal anticipates or is a little reflection on the communion meal. The communion meal is about God's provision in Jesus His supreme provision in Jesus on the cross and his ultimate presence with us now and then on into eternity. The best place maybe for you to share communion is around your table at the heart of the meal. That's where it was biblically that's where it was originally placed. As part of the meal, when we were celebrating God's provision and the welcome that he gives one to another, and we recognize our dependence on each other, but ultimately on him, they would break bread. they say, at the end of the day, this all comes down to Jesus. And they'd share the wine. And they'd say, this little meal that we're having this evening on a Friday night is an anticipation that one day we're going to have a massive feast when we're all together in the kingdom of heaven share communion around your table I know that as churches we've made sharing communion a scary thing we've made it feel like there's a right way to do it and if you get it wrong that somehow it'll be awfully wrong I have a very simple thought about communion that if you love Jesus and you're trying to honor him you can't get it wrong honestly I want that to be really freeing it's why sometimes when we do communion here, we try not to just do it the same way all the way, as if there's a right way. And if you, somehow if you get it wrong, God will be cross or angry. God's a dad who just welcomes us into his presence. We break this bread and we remember you, Jesus. And you gave your life for me, Jesus. And we share this wine because your blood was spilled. And one day there's going to be a great celebration and we're all part of that stuff. And there can be really life-giving, powerful moments to break bread And share wine as part of your ordinary meal. Take a moment in the meal to break bread. Take a moment at the end of the meal to share the wine around. May these be symbols of life to us. Jesus put the remembrance meal of communion right in the heart of the Passover. Which was in the end a family meal. A family affair. Because at every meal, and especially in communion, he is proclaimed and think about the story for me with me for a moment the road to Emmaus Jesus gets alongside these people haven't quite got to the meal yet but Jesus gets alongside these people and he he doesn't preach to them about the kingdom of God he doesn't tell them at the beginning that he's alive He, he doesn't sort of wash over the pain and the agony that they are in there's that kind of lovely but haunting phrase In the middle of that story, which says we, we, we had put our hope in him. For every person whose hope has been dashed and broken, Jesus doesn't rock up and say, Oh, don't worry about that. I'm alive, you know, Muppet. Jesus comes alongside us in our pain. In our hurt, in our distress, in our disappointment, in our disillusionment, in our brokenness, in our confusion, in our fear. And he begins to journey with us. And as we share meal with people, that's what we do. And as we do that, there will always come an opportunity to proclaim the kingdom of God. But if all we do is shout the kingdom of God at people before we've drawn alongside them like Jesus did in our story, we've lost before we've even begun. And if we share alongside people and they open up their hearts and their lives to us and we never go on to proclaim the gospel, we're equally in confusion the other way around. Are you with me? We, we embrace people in all the brokenness and pain and sadness and everything else that they face and there comes these opportunities then to proclaim the kingdom of god into their lives finally and a meal it's all about the party really who likes a good party you see christians are not very good at parties really cuz kind of parties are bad and wrong and stuff and there's plenty of things about parties that are bad and wrong but there's so much to have parties about and there's a sense in which your house should be the party capital of your street because you don't want to miss an opportunity to have a party. If for no other reason than one day there's going to be a massive party. And, and you know sometimes when a, a song goes on and on and on and on and you think, oh, heaven's going to be like this. <laughs> it's a bit like that with parties. You can spot the Christians in the party on, can we go home now? Can, can we go, uh, uh, how, how, how early can we go without it being rude? Heaven's going to be a party, folks. We've got to stretch our party muscles. Otherwise, it's going to be a very long one. Because you're going to go in heaven. What time do I go home? When you will realize your watch has stopped. Because there is time no more. And so, as we begin to gather people and use our table, the the best moments are when it's just utter chaos. And we just love the people that God's gathered around us because we love people. And we sense that Jesus is there and lives are being changed and there's just so much joy in the place, fun and laughter. The world needs more parties. Francis Schaeffer, who died some years ago, but you may have uh, have read some of the things that, that he wrote. Don't start a big program. Don't suddenly think you can add to your church budget and begin. Start personally. And start in your home. I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. Do what I'm going to suggest. Begin by opening your home for community. You don't need a big program. You don't have to convince your session or board. Or your deacons or trustees. Who would have none of it. I'm only joking. We've got a fantastic group of trustees. All you have to do is open your home and begin. And there's no place in God's world. Where there are no people who will come and share a home. As long as it's. A real home. Join in with the cultural events in your neighborhood. The chances are food will be involved somewhere because food is such a powerful bond. Look for opportunities to reinterpret what is happening all over the Bible. What stops us? What stops us using our tables for the glory of God? Well, I think um, pride stops us. I think pride stops us. Be- because if you, if you come to my house, you will see that well, my garden's not as good as yours. And you will see that I haven't cut the grass at all this last week. And I'm going to feel a bit awkward about that. And, you... and then you'll see in my office, and you'll see that it resembles something like a refugee camp, some kind of national disaster. And you'll ring up Samaritan's Purse. And you will think, what loser has an office like that? And you'll see my bookshelves, and you might judge me for the books on my shelves, Or you might see that there are no books on the shelves and judge me for that anyway you'll realize that the cutlery is not always in all the right category and sometimes the knives are in upside down and you might think that's dangerous and think that I don't care about my kids and you'll see maybe there's that stain on the carpet and you think goodness they haven't even cleared that up what kind of wasters live here and then you'll think oh they're not up to much their tv's half my size and perhaps if we gather food around the meal not all the plates will be the same color and that'll be awkward won't it you with me what's going on pride all that is that's pride that's sinful ugly pride we need to name it don't we it's pride so pride would stop me doing something that god calls me to do because i'm worried about being vulnerable and you might judge me for that and we've got to get over that because god says some things about pride pride and and being proud god opposes god opposes the pride the proud We have to die to self. And Jesus talked about taking up our cross and following him. And suddenly we're getting really real because to disciple people, to let them into our lives, to let them into our world, sometimes we've got to die to self. And people are not looking for a perfect example because they can't model a perfect example anyway. They're just looking for people that are real, that love Jesus and give them a handle on what it means to walk by faith. You with me? What else might stop us? I guess cost might stop us. feel like it's a a lot of money. And, And to be honest... Um, It took us a while to realize where all the money was going until we realized we were feeding people. Uh, And uh, and there's a cost to it. Uh, And you might not be able to feed lots of people, but you might be able to share a cup of coffee or an ice cream or a dessert or a starter or or something. Uh, And it's not about the food. People are not coming to you for a uh, a five-class meal. They'd go somewhere else for that, believe me. They're coming to you because it's you. You with me? It's about you. It's not about the food. It really isn't about The food. Uh, And sometimes we we, we create standards, don't we, that become impossible for us all to keep living up to. And they cook that meal and I can't invite them back because I don't think I can do that as well as they did that and I'll feel awkward. They'll feel awkward. They won't want to come because they'll think, oh, that was a rubbish meal. Well, they might think it was a rubbish meal, but they're going to love you and come anyway because it's not about the meal. It's not about the meal. But there is a cost, if we're honest. There is a cost. And uh, Jesus never said that discipleship was cheap or free. He said there'd be a cost. Part of your giving might be the cost of gathering people around your table. A little while ago, we had a meal. We had some unexpected guests. And at the end of it, my kids said to me, that wasn't very much, was it? And they were absolutely right. We were starving, but we'd done the right thing. And there's something good about that. And now I've shared that with you. I've lost my reward now because I've boasted about it publicly. So it's all done now. But in that moment, I thought, yeah, that's what it's about. Time time. Oh, it takes so much time. Or does it? Is time an illusion? You're going to eat anyway, probably, aren't you? So maybe this is doubling up time. I'm not asking you to have a meal and then come out and do something. I'm asking you to have a meal and for the meal to be what you're doing. Because you're going to eat anyway, I suspect. There aren't many of you. It's a pretty safe bet preaching on this, because I know that most of you are going to go and you're going to eat before the end of the day, which is a big improvement on some of the responses we make sometimes week by week. Just a little joke there, just to chill. Uh, We are going to eat, but we can do it for God's kingdom. And if nothing else, this week, in those meals, just pause a little bit longer and go, God, you're here. You're around this table, and that's an amazing thing. And I'm going to steward my conversation, and I'm going to open my heart, and I'm going to allow your spirit to be at work as we eat this egg sandwich, sausage roll, baked beans on toast, cordon bleu, whatever it might be. Do you know what? As you put that table in your toolkit, you can start a revolution right under your nose in your very own home and you don't even have to take your slippers off. Let's pray. Father, give me, give us a vision of our tables. So incredibly grateful, incredibly blessed for the tables that you've given us. Help me help us to understand what you're asking of us. Is there someone that I need to invite just a little bit more? Or honestly, is there someone to whom I should say, hey, can I come to your house for tea? Jesus did that with Zacchaeus. Turned out really cool. Let's get over our pride. Let's get over the things that get in the way that stop us. Lord, we have 21 opportunities this week to take someone by the hand. Help me to seize some of those opportunities for your kingdom purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.